please congregation your Bibles in the first place this morning to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. As we continue on our series of the Beatitudes, we come this morning to the fifth Beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And to unpack the meaning of this Beatitude, we want to read in the first place from Hosea chapter 6 before turning to the New Testament as well. Hosea 6 at verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, or mercy, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Thus far the word from Hosea. Let's turn also to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 at verse 25, a parable of mercy. Luke 10 at verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you back when I come. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, once again, the Lord Jesus sets before us a declaration of blessing. Blessed are the merciful, he says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in so doing, Jesus is adding yet another feature to the portrait, nor that we might have a, a composite picture of, of what every true believer looks like. For Jesus, we recall, is not so much telling his people what his people are to do, but he's telling us who his people are. And now we learn that in virtue of the mercy that his people have received from him, his people are the kind of people who show mercy to those around them. And so perhaps you notice that in this beatitude, our Lord is, is shifting gears a bit. Because if you read these beatitudes again, you'll notice that beatitudes 1 through 4 primarily speak to our sense of need. The first beatitude spoke to our poverty of spirit. The second to our mourning over sin. The third, to our meekness, to our needing to to wait upon the Lord to intervene. And the fourth spoke to our hunger, our thirst, our needing God to, to fill us with that which can truly satisfy. The first four Beatitudes describe God's people in terms of their neediness. But now our Lord shifts gears a bit to speak to the effect that God's having answered those needs now has on the believer's life. When God applies the the merits of Christ to the believer's spiritual bank account, and when God comforts the, the believer when he mourns over his sin, and when God assures him that he is coming to intervene, and when God begins to satisfy the believer with that which truly satisfies, that has a real impact on the believer's life. And so our Lord now directs our attention somewhat away from our sense of neediness to the new disposition that that sense of neediness has produced in our hearts. Those who have come to terms with their poverty of spirit, those who have come to know and experience something of the Lord's comfort and satisfaction, they begin to live in a whole new way. Whereas they used to be malicious, they now become merciful. Whereas they used to be double-minded and self-serving, they begin to devote themselves to God with with purity of heart. 
Whereas they used to create strife and division, they now seek to make peace. And they endure the persecutions and, and reviling of the world, knowing that their reward will be great in heaven. And so as we've been seeing all along, Christ has been turning the logic of the world upside down. He's been showing us the, the true nature of blessedness, that true blessedness is defined by God, and true blessedness is, is given by God, despite what the world would have us otherwise to think. And as Jesus does this, as Jesus turns the logic of the world upside down, it only makes sense that there should be a logical progression to what Jesus is, is teaching his disciples here. Each of these beatitudes seems to feed into the next. The first four feed into the second four. Jesus, of course, recognizes. He knows that we live in a malicious world. He knows that we live in a world where, where people look out for number one with little to no regard for neighbor because that's the, the tried and true way to, to get ahead. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what a searching statement this is. With these words, writes Martin Lloyd-Jones, our Lord is, is testing us. He is, he is pressing us with the question, are you merciful? Are you merciful? What is your, your disposition towards those around you? What is your disposition towards those who have wronged you? Are you full of mercy? Are you full of mercy towards them? Or are you struggling to let bitterness and malice go? With these words, our Lord is testing us. Commenting on this beatitude, Lloyd-Jones notes that if we dislike this sort of testing, if we are impatient with it, if we dislike this sort of probing, it simply means that our whole position is entirely contrary to that of the New Testament man. But if we feel, on the other hand, that although these things do search us and hurt us, but that they are nevertheless essential and good for us, and if we feel it is good for us to be humbled, then we have good reason to be hopeful. For no true Christian ever objects to being humbled, he writes. For the one who is truly poor in spirit will always desire to be confronted with, with the description of what Jesus says his people are like. And Jesus says that his people are a merciful people. His people are a merciful people because his people are a people who are known by a merciful God. As we've seen in each of these Beatitudes thus far, we recognize that none of these virtues are natural. None of them come to us naturally, but they are all spiritual. They're all worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so what Christ is telling us here is that those who have received mercy show mercy. Those who have received mercy show mercy. And those who show mercy can rest assured that they will receive more mercy still. That's what Christ is pressing upon us here in this beatitude. He would have us to remember our own miserable state in which we once found ourselves. Paul's words in the first three verses of Ephesians Chapter 2, paint a pretty good picture of that miserable state. He says, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the, the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air, 
You're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's how Paul describes our miserable state, our miserable condition. But then what does Paul say in Ephesians 2 verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ. God did not pass by our misery. But God being rich in mercy sent his son into the world to live the life we could never live. And to die the death we could never have endured to die. As we saw a number of weeks ago in article 20 from the Belgian Confession. God made known his justice toward the son who was charged with our sin, and he poured his goodness and mercy upon us. Although we were the guilty ones, the ones who were worthy of his wrath and damnation, he nevertheless gave us his son, our confession says. And by a most perfect love, he raised him to life for our justification, in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. Mercy, you see, always has to do with the alleviation, the, the lifting of, of misery. Mercy pays attention. Mercy gives attention to those in misery. And from this, we can distinguish mercy, for example, from, from grace. Whereas grace is primarily shown to the undeserving, mercy is shown to the miserable. Whereas grace is like a friend who visits one who needs saving, mercy is like a physician who visits one who is sick. And that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 9, isn't it? Here we discover that Jesus was not the kind of person who, who recoiled from people's misery. But to the Pharisees' unbelieving amazement, he sat down and ate with tax collectors and sinners. It was to their unbelieving amazement because they did not recognize the depth of their own misery. And that was the Pharisees' problem. They did not see their own misery. Here in Matthew 9, the gospel writer has recorded his own conversion story. In his former life, he was a tax collector. He was a miserable sinner. In the, in the estimation of the Pharisees, he was the worst possible kind of sinner. But when Matthew heard Christ say to him, come and follow me, he immediately dropped everything and followed him. And so from the outset of our passage, we're shown something of the power of mercy, aren't we? Christ came for such a miserable man as Matthew. Christ's misery, Christ's mercy for the miserable has the power to transform a tax collector into an apostle. His mercy has the power to melt the hearts of the most hard-hearted sinners. And if there are any of us here this morning who have an unbelieving friend or family member, we need to believe that, that, that no sinner is so miserable that he or she is beyond the reach of God's mercy. For it was for such people that Christ came into the world. He came for the, miser for the miserable. In his tender mercy, he came for those in misery. But this, we discover, is the very thing that the Pharisees hated about him the most. And so we read that when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, they, they asked his disciples, what is your teacher doing? 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In their proud blindness, writes J.C. Ryle, they fancy that a teacher sent from heaven ought to have no dealings with such people. But they were wholly ignorant of the grand design for which the Messiah was come into the world, namely to be a savior, a physician, a healer of sick souls. For those who are well have no need of a physician, says Jesus, but only those who are sick. And what Jesus is highlighting here is that if we are to find salvation and deliverance in him, we must first recognize that we stand in desperate need of him. We must see our poverty of spirit. As we confess in Lord's Day 1 of our catechism, the first thing we have to know if we want to live and die and the joy of God's mercy. What do we have to know? We have to know how great my sin and misery are. Only then, when we know our misery, will we come to Christ for mercy. Only then do we discover that his mercy is indeed readily available to us, even in the midst of our misery. And so we must never forget, says Ryle, that sinners are the ones whom Christ came to save. Sinners we are the day we first come to Christ, and poor and needy sinners we continue to be so long as we live. Which is simply to say that we must recognize that we need Christ no less today than we needed him yesterday, or the day before, or the day we first believed. Sadly, the Pharisees were blind to this reality because the Pharisees did not see the depth of their own misery. They did not know to look to Christ for mercy. And because they did not know to look to Christ for mercy, they had no disposition of mercy towards those who were miserable around them. Such a miserable person as Matthew, in their estimation, was was beneath them. And so Jesus quotes the words of the prophet Hosea, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the days of the prophet Hosea, God, you could say, took his people to covenant court. Hosea's summons to repentance had apparently gone unhurt. He he cried out, come, let us return to the Lord. He 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 who has torn us will heal us. He who has struck us down, he will bind us up. He pled with them, let us press on to know the Lord, for his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea knew that the Lord was a God of mercy. He knew that, that God was the God of, of Moses, who passed by Moses and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But God's people would not take heed of the prophet's voice. They would not turn from their sin. They would not acknowledge the depth of their misery. And so God brings his indictment against them in verses 4 to 6. He says, what am I to do with you, O Ephraim? What am I to do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that that early goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
You see, the problem with God's people in the days of Hosea was the very same problem with the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. They both thought that they could honor God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. They thought they could bring their sacrifices to God, but their hearts didn't really have to be in it. They had totally lost sight of the heart of God's law, which the prophet Micah says was to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. And that was the prophet's point. That was the point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 9. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You've lost sight of the heart of the law to show mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And this is the point that the prophet Jesus makes in his parable here in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, Jesus tells a parable to teach us what mercy is really all about. He says there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him there half dead. But then two religious men, a a priest and a Levite, saw him there half dead on the road, but they passed by on the other side. Perhaps they were worried of becoming ritually unclean, or perhaps they just didn't want the inconvenience of it. But the point is this, they had no compassion. They showed no mercy. But when the Samaritan saw him, he went to where he was and he had compassion. He had compassion, he showed the man mercy. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own anvil and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And from this parable we learn that mercy is compassion in action. That's what mercy is. Mercy is compassion in action. True mercy doesn't just take note of a person's misery, but true mercy does something about it. Kent Hughes tells a story of a 19th century pastor who happened across a friend whose horse had accidentally been killed. And while the crowd of onlookers expressed empty words of sympathy, the preacher stepped forward to the loudest sympathizer. And he said, well, I'm sorry, five pounds. How sorry are you? And then he passed his hat between the onlookers in order that they might raised some funds to replace the man's horse that had been killed. Mercy is compassion in action. And so when Jesus said, which of these three was proved to be a neighbor, the answer is rather obvious, wasn't it? It was the one who showed the man mercy. And then what did Jesus say to this lawyer? He said, now you go and do likewise. Mercy is, in the first place, compassion and action. Such is the mercy that God has shown to us, is it not? That as we confess in Article 17 of the Belgian Confession, when God saw the man and the woman trembling all over, God drew near to the man and the woman, and he comforted them, and he promised them, I'll bless you, I'll I'll send you the seed of the woman to, to crush the head of the serpent and to make you blessed. 
Mercy is in the first place compassion in action. But the Bible shows us in the second place that another essential component to mercy is that mercy is also forgiving. Mercy is also forgiving. Think of of Joseph standing before his brothers as the second in command over all of Egypt after years of having sold his, their brother into slavery. Here the brothers stand literally at Joseph's mercy. And mercy is exactly what Joseph gives them. He, he meets their needs and he forgives them saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, when the child of God remembers his or her own sin and how God has shown mercy in the midst of his or her own misery, then the child of God cannot help but show mercy to others. When God remembers how, when the child of God remembers how God forgave him, he cannot help but forgive others. That's what we learn from another one of our Lord's parables in Matthew 18, the parable of that unforgiving servant. There Jesus says there was a A man who owed his master a great debt that he could never pay. You'll recall that the master had compassion on him and forgave the debt full and free. But later when that servant had the opportunity to forgive one of his own servants a far lesser debt, he had no compassion. His fellow servant fell down and pled with him saying, have patience on me and I will pay you. But he refused and put him in prison until he paid off the debt. When the other servants saw this, they were greatly distressed, and they reported it to their master, who then said to his servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pled with me, and should you not have shown mercy to this fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus concluded the parable, saying, so also, My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Now, Jesus, we, of course, recognize is not in any of these places suggesting that our mercy is that which earns or merits God's mercy. But what Jesus is driving home here in this beatitude and in these parables is that those who are truly God's children, those who have been the objects of God's mercy, cannot help but extend mercy to others. What Jesus is showing us here is that mercy is the family likeness. Mercy is the family business. And this is the family that we're a part of, the family of mercy. To be sure, writes Hughes, there may be some who find forgiveness to be incredibly difficult at times, particularly if the wounds are fresh. But Christ's warning, he says, is not so much for those who earnestly struggle to forgive as it is for those who don't even have the desire to forgive. And to those who feed old hatreds, to those who hold on to old grudges, Jesus says you'd better take stock of your life. You see, the overall lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is that if we are Christians, we can forgive and we will forgive. 
no matter how imperfect that forgiveness at times may be. If you are a Christian, you can forgive and you will forgive. For there is a, a new power, a new principle at work within you, the principle of, of the new man, as, who, as Paul says in Colossians 3, puts to death all malice, all anger and wrath that lives in his heart. If you are a Christian, you can forgive and you will forgive. In virtue of the mercy that God has shown to us, we have the ability and the calling to show mercy to others. As I was preparing this sermon, I came across an excerpt from Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. In that biography, she calls to mind meeting a guard from the Ravensbrook concentration camp where her sister had died and where she herself had been subjected to horrible abuse. And apparently this man had come to hear her speak at a church in Munich. And as the church was emptying, he approached her saying how grateful he was for her message that Christ would be so gracious as to wash away even his sins, as grievous as his sins were. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, she writes. But I, who had preached so often about forgiveness, kept my hand at my side. But even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? As she struggled to raise her hand, she prayed, Lord, forgive me and help me to forgive him. But at first she felt nothing and extend her hand. She could not, she writes. And so again, she breathed a silent prayer saying, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as she took his hand, the most incredible thing happened, she writes. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Forgiveness, you see, is possible for even the most grievous of wounds. Do you believe that this morning? Are you merciful? Are you full of mercy? Are you full of compassion and forgiveness? Or are you instead holding on to bitterness or a grudge as though it were a treasured possession? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. This is the promise that the great physician sets before us this morning. Jesus came for the miserable. He came to show them mercy. Jesus himself is the, the good Samaritan, isn't he? He's the good Samaritan par excellence. He's the good Samaritan who, who did not pass us by when he saw us in our misery. There was a man lying half dead on the road, and the gospel says that that man was you. That man was me. Jesus came to you. He came to me. And in the midst of your misery, in the midst of my misery, Jesus showed mercy. Because he himself is the good Samaritan par excellence. And at the end of Matthew chapter 9, we see that this is so. At the end of Matthew 9, we learn that not only did Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, but Matthew tells us that as Jesus 
went throughout all the cities and villages. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and healed every kind of disease and affliction. And then Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And with these words, I think that, Ma- that Matthew would have us to, to place ourselves in there, to place ourselves somewhere there in the crowds and, and to see the Savior seeing us, having compassion upon us. When Jesus saw us in our sin and misery, he did not pass us by. He did not recoil from us, but he drew near to us to, to bind our wounds, to pour that, that healing oil on our heads. He drew near to us to carry our burdens and to pay the cost of our recovery, not with two denarii, but with his own precious blood. And this, people of God, is who Jesus still is to this very day. Hebrews 2.17 assures us that in stark contrast to the the priest from Jesus' parable, Christ is still a merciful and faithful high priest. When he encounters bruised reeds in his word, he does not break them. When he comes across faintly burning wicks, he does not snuff them out. This is Christ's disposition towards you this morning. His disposition towards you is a disposition of mercy. As the psalmist says, his mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And what this means is that his mercy, which saved you in your misery, will carry you all the way to glory. So that when you stand before God in the last day, even then, his mercy will, will be your help and your shield. And so let us take his words to heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, you are the God of all comfort and you are the Father of all mercies. And what mercy you have shown to us, what compassion and action, sending your Son into the world to live for us and to die for us. Father, we pray that the mercy which you have shown to us would so live in us that we would show mercy to others. That we too would have compassion and action. That we too would be quick to forgive and to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. For when we behold how great was the debt that you forgave on account of our sin, how can we not? Forgive those who have sinned against us. How can we not extend mercy to them? Father, we pray that you would always give us hearts that are willing to be humbled. That we would long to hear this description of who we are. That we are to be like Jesus who is gracious and merciful. May you press this beatitude upon our hearts. Blessed are the merciful. 
and the comfort that we shall receive mercy. This we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.